um, education resiliency work is really focused um, on teachers, on how we prepare teachers for for the profession, how we support them when they're in their classrooms, um, the kind of training that they need. Uh, can you imagine the drastic change that they had to implement practically overnight to go from an experience of working with children face-to-face -face in a classroom to overnight being expected to be masters of online learning? Thank you for joining me today for Keynotes, Stories of Collective Impact. I'm Marcus Chavez, Communications Director for the Keystone Policy Center. If you join me for our last episode, you know we pivoted to discuss our education system, which perhaps like no other institution, has been overwhelmed by the COVID-19 pandemic. I mentioned last week that we as a nation failed to prepare our school districts across the country for such a devastating event and have been playing catch-up ever since the spring of 2020. If you will indulge me for just a minute, I would like to tell a personal story from my own family that illustrates some of the decisions teachers have been facing during the pandemic. I briefly mentioned last week that my mother is a lifelong teacher in Southeast Idaho. Being a diabetic and a person nearing the age of 60, she was concerned about her safety returning to a classroom during a pandemic. She had officially completed the required amount of service to retire, so in the interest of her own safety, she reluctantly opted to submit her paperwork to retire. Believe me when I say she didn't want to do this. She loves teaching, and I could see how agonizing it was for her to retire. However, in a turn of good fortune, her school approached her about being a full-time virtual teacher instead of retiring. In theory, this would allow her to stay out of the school, but also allow her to continue teaching. She accepted and quickly began getting her home outfitted with the necessary technology to teach virtually. That process was, shall we say, a journey. She even asked me if I would help her set up her webcam since teaching on a tablet was problematic. I attempted to do so and even had flashbacks to the times when I was a kid and she would ask me to fix the VCR. For all you kids who don't know what a VCR is, just Google it. Anyway, try as I might, I couldn't get my mom's built-in webcam to work. I honestly don't know if she ended up getting the webcam to work or just opted to use the tablet. After a lengthy period of getting used to virtual teaching, she eventually found her groove. She was confident in the education she was delivering to her students and found the same joy in it. There's more to this story, but suffice it to say that I doubt my mother was anticipating on having to become an expert on video conferencing and virtual education. But she did, as did nearly every teacher in America. And if it wasn't virtual technology, it was managing social distancing, disinfecting, and ventilated spaces for in-school teachers. And while teaching is incredibly rewarding, it is stressful, requiring educators to wear multiple hats teacher, mentor, mental health supporter, coach, all this, in addition to their personal responsibilities at home. There's not a lot of balance there, so perhaps it's time to rethink the education system in its entirety, and I mean in radically different ways. Well, there's a group doing that, and they've already had some bold recommendations looking at the future of education. As state and local education leaders appropriately continue to focus on meeting the immediate needs of students during the abrupt shift to a remote instruction because of the COVID-19 pandemic, Keystone and the Public Education and Business Coalition gathered a number of educators and leaders to begin a parallel effort, looking at the future of education. These leaders formed the Education System Resiliency and Innovation Initiative, a broad coalition and research initiative focused on strengthening the teacher workforce, improving educator supports for teacher practice and instructional delivery, and identifying additional systemic shifts that could build off of learning from the current disruption. 
Barrick Abramson, the director of Keystone's education program, explains. So as we talk to state leaders, as we talk to leaders of the Department of Education, of higher education, the governor's office, principals and superintendents, they all had a real desire to walk those parallel paths to say, I need to focus on tomorrow, but I know we're experiencing things that should inform next year and the year after that and beyond. So we had a lot of conversations with different stakeholders, from those state leaders to teachers to private sector, uh, about what would be important to discuss. And everybody agreed there were two critical things. One, how were our students doing? And what was being learned about how instruction was being delivered? and how students were digesting and progressing through that instruction, and two, how teachers were doing. We asked teachers to make such a tectonic shift overnight, and we knew there were challenges. So this group encouraged us to convene a a broad group of stakeholders and really dig into what was being learned during this pandemic that can be applied going forward to strengthen our education system as a whole. The initiative gathered more than 80 education system stakeholders, from teachers to parents to legislators to system administrators and even business owners, for more than six months. From the first meeting of the initiative, the word hopeful dominated the conversation when members were asked about their thoughts about the future of education. Many spoke about the need to be bold and recognizing how many students, educators, and families found themselves in a much different, often uncomfortable new reality. The the boldness and the commitment to something better. When we held our first meeting, Everybody was close to tears over the pressure they were under and what teachers and students were experiencing. But to a person, they all finished their remarks with hope, saying, I'm hopeful we're going to get to a better place. As I mentioned earlier, Barrick was looking for ideas on a complete reimagining of the education system and to not think within the confines of the current structure. Barrick believes that kind of radical thinking is required to lead to a revitalized and reimagined education system. Carolina Villagrana is a teacher who participated in the initiative and explains why that thinking helped spur discussions. The question was like, if there was no constraints whatsoever and like funding wasn't an issue, like what would school or what were the possibilities that could live? And I think that really just helped broaden the conversation. Um, so it first started off like really broad picture and then all then it evolved into more like, okay, like if we wanted to move in this direction, such as um redefining a school day or school academic calendar, like what pieces and policy do we need to start shifting or even having conversations to shift? It was helpful to not be so tied into like, well, we can't do that because of like X and X policy or law, but rather as to like, if this is the goal, then what, what, what do we need to shift or how do we navigate about going to change this? Another participant in the initiative was Lauren Jenkins, who is the founder of Mini Money Management an organization that teaches financial literacy to children. He was also struck by the reimagined approach. I can't remember the meeting exactly, but it was almost like a blank slate. Like like somebody threw out a new idea and then it was just more new ideas, more new ideas. And we kind of stopped. We're like, are we getting off topic? And like you, Barrett just had the biggest smile on his face. He's like, no, like this is perfect. Like this is what we want to do. Um, yeah, which is it, it brings a lot of positivity to education, which is what it should be. The initiative focused on three primary streams of inquiry. Those streams were first, the educator workforce, which explored opportunities for reimagining the educator workforce and the role of teacher. Second, teaching and learning, which explored best practices, innovations, and emerging approaches to instruction. 
And finally, training and supporting great teachers, which examine changes, improvements, or shifts in how we train and support new and veteran teachers through the lens of lessons learned during the COVID-19 interruption. Here's more from Abramson. But the report will be making recommendations in our three areas of exploration. Number one, the educator workforce. Number two, what we're broadly calling teaching and learning. And then the third bucket really is informed by those first two, it's teacher trainings and supports. And in those, you know, in the questions in the educator workforce, our group has said we need to rethink all the pathways into the profession so that we're welcoming more people into the teaching profession. Then they've said we need to rethink what the roles and pathways are once somebody's in the profession so that we're giving teachers an, an opportunity to advance their careers, we're retaining teachers, and it's an attractive career for people to enter. Um, so that's some of the things in the educator workforce and just really empowering local leaders to structure an educator workforce that fits their community. Jenkins explains more about the training and teacher support discussions. The biggest moment for us was like, well, if you had a pilot and it was it was in his first year, you wouldn't expect him to be doing the same thing as a pilot who's been flying for 20 years. Like you wouldn't give him the same plane. You wouldn't do this. And I think that was just such a big moment because you think like these some of these kids are coming out of school at 21, 22, 23 years old. And we're giving them the exact same workload as somebody who's been in the industry for 30 years. And then you also have to think of it as if I've been in this game for 30 years, why am I still doing the same thing I was doing 15 years ago? Like it. And so I think like for us to say like, well, wait a minute, like the the thought process behind what a teacher is and how we define that role is wrong. And so like that, I mean, that breaks down like one of the kind of pillars of the education system like that. That really is going to change how education works if you break down that pillar. Via Grana found the diverse coalition to be a strength of the initiative involving many stakeholders, including parents, in the conversation about reimagining education. I think what came out of this also, this opportunity, is that this conversation no longer just lives in a space of just educators and policymakers or think tanks, but it also brought in brought in other stakeholders like families. And so I just really push on like being reflective and really noticing like what benefited your child or what benefited our students during that time and then what also didn't. And so when we're having the space of conversation of really redefining schools or academic learning spaces differently, really putting their inputs and in their voice as to like, I know my students learn best because I saw this. Um, and at the same time, making sure that we just don't throw the baby with the, out with the bathwater, but at the same time, really making sure like, what is the information? How do how are parents and community going to know that their students are learning in this this new space or hopefully a newer space? Um, and making sure what progress looks like for their child, and at the same time, then like, what is that partnership as well will look like as we move forward with um, these potential innovation opportunities? The initiative also supported a variety of micropilots and field studies in the fall of 2020 to explore some of the ideas raised during the project. Yeah, so we, we had a handful of micropilots out there, um, and really it was about learning opportunities. Um, and things like, a lot of people have heard about these learning pods. And in some cases, they've been stood up by the schools themselves as a way for students to get more individualized instruction. In other places, like one of the micropilots we were learning from, it was community-driven. And I think there's an example of something that grew from a need that existed as a result of the COVID-19 system interruption. When kids aren't in school and parents have to be at work, suddenly parents were saying, where can we bring some kids together to be learning together and they can get some instruction? 
Um, it's a great idea. Unfortunately, a lot of the early learning pods were set up by those parents who could afford to pay for something like that or, or where there was just limited availability. So we wanted to learn what does this look like when a community stands something like that up and, and it's focused on equitable access. And sometimes equitable access is equal access. Sometimes equity means something different than just equality. Um, so that was an example of one where we wanted to look at different examples and we're learning from some that are stood up by the district, others that are stood up by the communities. And that's part of what has informed this group's recommendations going forward. The initiative released a report detailing its recommendations and the micropilots on February 9th. There's also a webinar being scheduled for the first week in March where a few of the initiative's participants will speak about the project. The group is optimistic about the potential for sustainable change that will improve student outcomes and address many of the inequities that have been exacerbated by COVID-19, as well as elevate the teaching profession by improving teacher retention and reducing the teacher shortage. No other perspective matter more than that of a teacher during this project. I think a lot of the focus during this pandemic has been what kids are going through, and we can't underestimate the toll it's taking on them, the, the loss uh, of social interaction and the social emotional issues. But we have to also remember that teachers are people and these teachers don't exist in a vacuum and they're at home a lot of the times with their own kids and navigating all of this. So a big part of what we wanted to do was just talk to teachers and listen to them of what were the issues they were dealing with in their own personal mental health, as well as being able to address the mental health challenges of kids. And our goal was to understand how the system could be more supportive. And whether that system is the teacher training programs in better preparing them for the challenges that they may experience in the classroom or the professional development that they're being offered or just the supports that whether it's the school building, the school district or the state provide. So it really was about listening, about asking the questions and, and giving teachers the space to share with us what we need to do better for that. Perhaps more than anything, the Education System Resiliency and Innovation Initiative was primarily focused on supporting teachers. If I'm being honest, I still don't think the general public understands the mentality of a teacher and how they do so much for our students. Again, I ask for your patience as I indulge in telling you more about my mom, the teacher, as there is still more to the story that I started at the beginning of this episode. As we all know, the fall and winter saw a significant surge in COVID-19 cases across the country to the point where my mom's school district in Idaho was considering a transition to all virtual options for students. My mom, now being the most experienced teacher in virtual tools, was asked by her principal to lead the training for her colleagues at her school. But for some reason that to this day still baffles me, she was asked to give the training in person. So on the Friday before Thanksgiving, my mom led two in-person training sessions on virtual teaching for her colleagues. I know, the irony, right? A few days later, she started feeling sick. The day before Thanksgiving, she tested positive for COVID-19. In fact, more than a dozen people tied to that training tested positive for the virus. Thankfully, my mother survived, as did all of those who attended the meeting. But she only did so after suffering through more than two weeks of hell and a trip to the hospital. During that time, my mind considered scenarios I hope I never have to consider again. But the reason why I'm telling you this story is because of the conversation I had with her on Thanksgiving morning. The day after her positive test, but before she got real sick. I spent much of that conversation venting my frustration about her boss forcing her to conduct training in person. She didn't care about any of that. She was only concerned about one thing, that she was going to get too sick to teach her students the following Monday, which would leave them without a teacher for a time because there was nobody else in her school that could teach them virtually. And to me, 
nothing said more about the mentality of a teacher that in that moment, when she was literally facing down her own mortality, all this 30-year educator was thinking about was making sure her students would receive their education. And that is why ventures like the Education System Resiliency and Innovation Initiative are so important, because they are seeking to deliver the support our teachers and students deserve and have been overdue for so long. Keynotes is a production of the Keystone Policy Center, a 501c3 nonprofit organization based out of Keystone, Colorado, which, for more than 45 years, has empowered leaders to reach common higher ground. This episode has been made possible by a contribution from the Denver Foundation. If you would like to learn more about Keystone Policy Center, visit our website at keystone.org. Keystone.org